0: Turn together to Acts chapter two. It's awesome that uh, the old songs, the new songs, the songs that have yet to be written, are all telling the same story and pointing us in the same direction. And um, it's always just awesome to gather with you on Sundays. If you're here with us for the first time, uh, really, really glad that you're here, and hope that. Uh, just your time with us is a blessing to you. Um, in Acts chapter 2, we have we kind of find ourselves at the end of, of a series of sorts, I guess. Uh, since the beginning of the year, we've been in the book of Acts in different capacities. And uh, this is the last Sunday for that. And we'll kind of turn a corner, headed toward Easter next week. And uh, one of the the, I guess maybe the main idea that we've been looking at together is just looking at the very first church, the very first group of Christians, and um, really just reading about them and studying them and seeing exactly what is described here in the book of Acts as Luke uh, went around and gathered eyewitness accounts just describing all the things that happened. And to study them, there's really been no more fruitful or whatever, just amazing time in the history of the church than, than here in the, in that first that first um, couple of like, months and years where just some phenomenal things happened. And this was an amazing group of people that we should be challenged by, that God wants us to learn from and to uh, imitate in a lot of ways. And so uh, the last you know, two and a half months, we've kind of just been there on Sunday nights. Um, so there are two passages that we looked at last week in, in Acts, or we look at again tonight. So I would like, like to just look at them together. Uh, For a second. The first one is in chapter 2, starting in verse 42. It's this kind of amazing, just summary type description of what it was like uh, to be a part of this group and the things that they did. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. We've kind of been just extracting like various descriptions of this uh, early church over the last couple of weeks. And I want us to kind of zero in a little bit on, um, on 44 and 45. Let me just look at them one more time. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. Keep in mind that, that kind of, of generous spirit that existed among them. And then maybe just turn over a page or scroll down, you know, whatever. Uh, to chapter 4, verse 32. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own. But they had everything in common. Um, this... This idea that, you know, everyone had possessions, but they weren't possessive over them. Um, Verse 33, With great power the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them. For as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them, and brought the proceeds of what was sold, and laid it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to each as any had need. All right There are no needy people among them. Um, that could mean among their own fellowship, like among other Christians, or it could just mean like in those like people that they would come across as well that if there was a need, they were going to meet that need, and if it meant going to sell something, they were willing to do that, and so that sometimes they would go sell things and they would take the money and bring it to the apostles and say, "Hey." Uh, whatever needs are there, you know, let's meet this, or let's meet this need, or whatever. So they would sell things in order to get the money, and then they would, you know, take care of the need. Verse 36, Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. So this was a normal thing for them. This generosity, this... Uh, open-handedness with their possessions, this um, ability to live life, identify needs, and then do whatever it took to meet those needs. we talked about them being a people of prayer, about being spirit-filled, we've talked about their devotion to the scriptures and, and how they made space in their lives for other people, um, and tonight we're going we're gonna to look at this aspect, this generosity that was there. And and how much like I you know last week I talked about going back to Leviticus 19 when the instruction was whenever you um, are reaping the harvest of your field to not cut all the way to the edges or in the corners but to leave those for those for folks who were traveling through who were sojourners or for those who were poor and couldn't afford their own food and so built into the DNA of of Israel was this idea that God has blessed us with crops. And we are to use those crops to feed ourselves and you know generate income for our families and all those kinds of things. But also, he's blessed us with these crops so that we can take care of those who don't have food. And uh, God has called us to be a blessing to those uh, who are in need. So this was built into them already. And so when the church was born and this conversion to Christianity happened, when they realized that Jesus was the Messiah who had, who had risen from the dead... The Spirit of God filled them, and generosity was just a normal, natural thing that you would do. Because this recognition of how generous God has been with us made you naturally want to pass it on to other people. This that we see in Acts chapter 2 is not a freak occurrence. There are some things that we see in the book of Acts that are very unique, and they belong to that, like that particular situation, that particular time, what God was doing then, and it is describing something amazing, but it's not necessarily prescribing something that should happen all the time. That's how you handle a narrative book like Acts. Um, that There are some things it's just describing, and that needs to be a blessing in and of itself. Um, but then there are times when, when something is being prescribed that we should pay attention to, and those are things that we see all throughout the Scriptures in a linear sense, this common thread that works all the way throughout the Bible, those are the things that we pay attention to and so tonight we 're going to talk about we 're talking about money and if you 're one of those folks who uh, that 's like one of your big beefs with the church i 'm sorry, if, especially if it 's your first night like you know, this is not something that we talk about incessantly, and we 're not. We're not trying to build, you know. We don't like I've said before. There isn't like a giant thermometer on the stage, and we're trying to like increase the giving so we can like build some big megaplex or whatever. That's that's not where we are. That's not what's going on. So this sermon does not come at you to try and like sell you on enhancing our budget. That's not what this is about. Money, possessions, and the way that we think about them, and the role that they play in our lives was of major importance to our, it is of major importance to our spiritual formation, so much so that Jesus talked about that as much as he talked about anything else. He knew that we would have a problem with it. Um, He knew that that it would be an issue. He knew that it was something that we would struggle with. And so that's what I'm going to talk about for the next few minutes, is how do we get to the point where we're generous like they were generous? Because I don't think anybody looks at that and is like, oh, I don't want to be that kind of person, you know. I don't want to be the kind of person that's like willing to sell my stuff in order to like provide food or shelter or clothing or some sort of need for someone else. I don't want to be that kind of person. Nobody looks at that and says, no, that's not for me. We all, I believe, desire deeply to have the same thing said of us. You know, that Like, oh, you know that, that church with the weird name called The Ring? But let me tell you something about them. They will do whatever they can do to meet a need, even if they have to go sell something. If they have to go to the pawn shop, which is, don't go to the pawn shop. There are better ways. But you know what I'm saying. Like, even if whatever it takes to to meet needs, they're going to do that. If God tells them to do it, they're going to do it. Um, All of us, I believe, want to be described that way. And Jesus wants to continue to make us into the kind of people that are described that way and he 's done so in a very important way so i want to i 'm going to kind of break this into three three sections the first one let's just let 's just kind of have a baseline understanding of the Bible and money okay um, now i 'm going to throw a bunch of scriptures out and i don 't need you to turn to them if you 're taking notes just write them down we 'll put them on the screen but we 'll be here for a while trying to find some of these so just just trust me so psalm twenty four verse one um, kind of gives us a really a really broad way of thinking about possessions and money. It starts off and it just says very simply, "The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and all those who dwell therein." Okay, so you look at that first part. A Psalm of David. That's not part of the verse. Um, that's like the the paragraph thing. But the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. Some translations say, "The earth is the Lord's and everything in it," which means that all money on the on the earth is the Lord's. All possessions on the earth are the Lord's. Um, he owns the things that nobody owns. You know? Nobody owns the ocean. God owns the ocean. And the mountains and the trees. And all the cattle and all the dogs and cats and all the goldfish and all of that stuff. And all the people and all the money and all the houses and all the cars and all the food and all the everything. Every, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. And everything in it belongs to God. Now that can kind of, that's a tough rabbit to trace a little bit. Because when you think about it, this, you know, in that sense you're saying like, okay, so the the money that is funding um, international justice mission to bring justice around the world, God owns that money. God also owns the money that's funding ISIS, you know. And that's when like your head kind of wants to explode. It's like, how can all those things be the case? Uh, So let's just maybe back down that rabbit trail a little bit. Let's just let's just uh, just not um, yeah. Let's just choose to think correctly about this. That the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. And even though that gets complicated sometimes, when we bring that back into our own lives, let's figure out how that impacts you. Well, that means that everything you own is the Lord's. That whatever you do for a living, you get a paycheck. Uh, every dime of that is the Lord's because you are the Lord's. Because you are a part of the fullness thereof on the earth. And so when we get into tithing and that kind of stuff, it's not about like, well, this, this part's God's and the rest of this is mine. It's like, no, it's all the Lord's. Every bit of it. And everything you own. So maybe the New Testament church had no problem selling their stuff because they didn't look at it as their stuff. You know, Maybe there wasn't this like kind of weird, possessive ownership that they had. Maybe they were just super open-handed about the things that they had. Um, and things like that. So that's kind of a good baseline. Every every bit of money in the whole world is the Lord's. Um, now my my next point is, is simply this: the Bible never says that money in and of itself is evil. It never talks to be about money as bad. Money is you know terrible. You need to it's you need to not have it. You need to stay away from it. Whatever. It never says that. It does say that our attachment to it is can be problematic. It doesn't have to be. It's not automatically, but it can be problematic. Um, so the Bible is really pro-money, but is anti-greed and materialism and hoarding and like those kinds of things. Let me, let me re- throw a couple of verses out there. Um, in Matthew 6, verse 24, Jesus says, No one can serve two masters, for he will either hate one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. So what Jesus is essentially doing here is he is saying that money can be a rival God in your life. It can rival him in your devotions and your affections and your worship and your uh, everything. That's a pretty intense statement when you think about it. Jesus says you can't love, you, you, you can't do both. You can't do both. He doesn't say that money is evil. He just says you need to understand what the, role, the role that it could play if you're not careful. In Luke 12, Jesus, Jesus again, He said to them, take care and be on, uh, on your guard against all covetousness for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Says, be on guard against greed being formed in your life and therefore it, it rivaling God and therefore it challenging your affections to your Savior. Colossians 3, this is very similar. Paul says, put to death therefore, this is 3-5. Paul says, put to death therefore what is earthly in you. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and coveted, covet, covetousness. I did practice that, I promise. Um, covetousness, which is idolatry. It says you need to put greed to death. Otherwise, it, will, it is basically this form of idolatry that is very subtle and very dangerous. Hebrews 13.5 Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For he said, I will never leave you or forsake you. He doesn't say to be free from money. He says to be free from the love of money. He doesn't say money is bad. He says the love of money is bad. When you begin to covet it and become greedy, and then you lose sight of the end part of that verse. Is like, well, God, God's with you always. Money will not be with you always. That our, our future as Christians on, on the new earth will not require money the way that this one does. Money's here one day, gone tomorrow, whatever, however you want to look at it. God says, I'm the one that's with you always. That's where you find your worth and your value. So money can be, for some, it's a major source of stress and worry. Um, For others, it's a a really dangerous source of materialism and greed. But for all of us, it has the potential to become an idol that you look to for security, for strength, for identity, for worth, for value, Um, either to inflate you or to deflate you. That's what idols do. And we exchange the truth of God for that lie. So God entrusts money to us to meet our needs and to meet the needs of other people. So to go back to Leviticus with the field, there's the field that someone would have. And it would feed their family and put a roof over their head. And it would allow them to trade and, and barter for goods and services and stuff like that in that culture. And then they would leave the margins cut for the poor and the sojourner. And so in that one example, you have both of those things happening. God entrusts you with something in order to meet your needs and to meet the needs of other people. And then as trading goods and services kind of morphed and it became about currency and things like that, the same thing exists, the same thing is the case. That God has entrusted you with money, maybe a little bit, maybe a lot of it, whatever, to meet your needs and meet the needs of other people. So God knew that we would need some help with this. He knew that this rival God would be, a, would be a problem. Whether you have money or you don't have money, it doesn't matter. He knew that it would be an issue. And so he built something into the life of Israel. And then we are grafted into that as, as New Covenant Christians. He's built something in that helps us. Helps us be formed more and more into the image of Christ. It helps us uh, keep the idol where it's supposed to be. It helps us in all these things. And it is the tithe. And some of you just you cringe when you hear that word because maybe your upbringing that word was was used abusively perhaps I mean that's kind of a strong word but um, maybe you grew up in a in a church tradition that just beat it over just beat you over the head about it made it into a rule you had to follow and if you weren't then you weren't good enough and that kind of stuff um, maybe just maybe you have some reason why you just don't like that word tithe but you know who loves the word tithe Jesus it's all throughout the book he wrote and it's something that we should we should get over the hang-ups that we have with it and understand the role that it's supposed to play. He's given us this beautiful gift uh, in, the, in our disciplines that help us keep money and possessions and all these kind of things right, playing the ro- exact role they're supposed to play. Not less than they're supposed to play and not more than they're supposed to play. It help keep, helps keep it right in line. So that's the Bible and money. The second section, I want to talk about tithing in the Old Testament. Because in order to understand... The New Testament, you have to understand the Old Testament, and that's like big, big story. But that's also um, in like some of the details of how they transfer. Um, so in the Old Testament, the first ten percent of everything were set apart to the Lord. So it could be crops, it could be uh, animals, it could be in, you know any sort of income and stuff like that. The first ten percent was dedicated to the Lord. So when you when it was time to like reap the harvest in your field the first 10% of it, you would do something with it. And you would bring that to the priest. And so in in Israel, the nation of Israel split into 12 tribes, and 11 of those tribes had, like, sections of land. And maybe, you know, if you grew up in Sunday school or went to a Christian school, you probably had to, like, name all all the tribes or, like, draw them on a map or whatever. Or in the back of your Bible, if you still have a paper Bible, there's probably a map back there, you know. Um... Eleven of those tribes had land, and then there was one tribe that didn't have any land. They were the Levites. They were the ones, like they were the priests who would tend to all the the sacrificial system and all the all the acts of worship for Israel. And so, uh, within those eleven tribes, there was there were Levitical priests in each one of those places. And so they didn't have land. That was a part of the sacrifice that they made uh, to play the role they were supposed to play in in Israel. And so. You would take the first ten percent of your of your cattle or goats or grain or anything that you harvested, and you bring it to the priest, and the priest would know what to do with it. And so sometimes it was it was uh, burned uh, as as a sacrifice to the Lord. Sometimes it was then traded for money that would then go to meet uh, the needs of the poor. Um, sometimes it was traded or used to meet, like meet the needs of the Levitical priests and that kind of stuff. But Um, It fit into this bigger picture of things. In Leviticus 27, verse 30, uh, we find this verse says, Every tithe of the land, whether the seed of the land or the fruit of the trees, is the Lord's. It is holy to the Lord. So tithe means tenth. So every tenth was special. Which is not to say that the other 90% was not special. The truth is, it's all special. And it's actually all made even more special when you devote a part of it to that really, like really special purposes with the Lord. And so from God's perspective, he's like, that's mine, that is holy. Everything's all mine, but this part, this is, this is special. And so the Old Testament tithe seems like a rule that they had to follow. But really, it was, it was something that we needed to think of as an act of worship. That that first tenth would be taken and you would go to the priest's. And you would hand that over to the priest as an act of worship and as an act of trust in in God. Let me give you a couple of reasons why it's an act of worship. One, um, it's an expression of gratitude. You're thanking the Lord. You're You're making this sacrifice to thank him for how he has blessed you with the crops and cattle and things like that. You're just saying, Lord, we acknowledge that all this is from you and we thank you for that second thing is what I just said, actually. The acknowledgement of God as the giver. You're saying, you're saying God, this, we didn't grow this grain on our own. We didn't send the rain and the sunshine and all the things that it takes to make this grow into what we have here before us. You're the giver of this, not me. The third thing is that it orders life. That God is First. So the first 10% that comes in, you take it to him. Say, God, you're, you are first in our lives. Not what all these crops are going to bring us or these cattle or whatever. Not all the things we're going to buy and own and that kind of stuff. You are f- ahead of all these things. Fourth thing, it deflates the idol. It completely lets the air out of the sails whenever um, that first 10% of the grain that comes in you say okay let's load it up let's take it to the priest it keeps it keeps the 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 grain and the money that could come from it playing the role it's supposed to play and it keeps that that greed from inflating in you especially in the years when the crop was really good you know the fifth thing is that you join god in his mission it funded the priests. It funded the, the work that they would do in the, um, like in the sacrificial system and keeping the people worshiping and, and all, the, all the things that needed to happen with, within this machine that was, uh, that was Israel. Without the priests there, they, could, they literally could not do um, life as, as God's people. And so they would bring that in and that would take care of the priests and also, the priests would use that to further take care of the poor and the needy and those coming through. And it was just this big, this big cycle of, of generosity and giving and sharing and uh, all this kind of stuff. And so it was a part of how God designed Israel to function with, within their tribe and also collectively as 12 tribes, strategically placed through all the trade routes with all these people coming through. It was a part of this bigger picture, uh, this simple act of tithing. So that's just five ways. It's an act of worship. So you have you have a group of people in the Old Testament who are tithing ten percent of of anything tied to income, and they're leaving margin in their fields, and they're leaving like they're just creating that space for other people. God is making his people in Israel into the most generous uh, nation on earth, and then Jesus shows up. And he lives this perfect life. And we've been singing about his, his life and his sacrifice and his resurrection. And, um, and then like his, he ascends and then the Spirit of God comes and like fills up the like, the... like literally indwells the people in Acts right here. And what do they start doing? They start meeting every need. No needy people existed among them. They sold all their stuff. They brought the money to the apostles' feet and said, do whatever you need to do with this. All they did was just continue the Old Testament stuff just in their current setting and they were filled with the spirit of God what we see in Acts is really what happens when the spirit fills you and enhances your perspective on your stuff that's what we see so here's the third section New Testament tithing some folks uh, really rage against tithing under the new covenant like, since Christ, everyone who's in Christ is a new creation. Here's this new covenant. We no longer have to tithe. Let me challenge, let me challenge that a little bit, and let me offer some perspective on it. Um, the same Old Testament principles are in place. Okay, So, we're not going to look at these verses, but in Matthew 23, verse 23, Jesus endorses the continued tithe. In 1 Corinthians 9, 13 and 14, Paul endorses the continuing tithe. In the book of Acts, we see uh, plenty of evidence that they continued all of the like normal like worship and ritual and all those things that they had been doing before they converted to Christianity and then they went above and beyond with their stuff. So if Jesus was going to change the game with tithing, he would have done it. But he didn't. He actually just really raised the bar. So, now we are not under the law, but now we are under grace. Okay? And if you've been around here for a while, you know that I personally am 100% down with that. And so are all all of our elders, and so are all of our staff, and all of our ministry team leaders, and all of our community groups, and all of our covenant members. We are all in on this fact that we are no longer under the law, that now we are under grace. So, are we free from a 10% rule? Yes. Yes. We are absolutely free from a 10% rule. So now, the calculator does not determine the tithe. Now, the Spirit of God that lives inside of you determines your giving. Does that mean that we uh, just ignore the 10% tithe? No, it does not. You read the Sermon on the Mount. You see Jesus... Let me, let me borrow some terminology from John Ortberg for a second. You see Jesus taking the law away from being a ceiling and making it a floor. Takes, takes all these things away and says, instead of this being the ceiling, this is now the floor. Okay? Old Testament, the tithe was 10%. That was the ceiling. So up to 10, that went to the Lord. And then above 10 was all yours. Now, instead of that being the 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 maximum, now it's the minimum. It's the starting place. Jesus does that with, with all kinds of topics all throughout the Sermon on the Mount. He says, well, you've been taught this, but what I tell you is this. And People are like, how many times do you have to forgive somebody? And, you know, the law says this, and Jesus is like, well, I'm about to blow your mind, because it's only going to go up from there. So yes, we are free from a rule that says 10%, and now we are free to pursue through the Spirit of God... How much should we give above that 10%? That that would be the new covenant way of looking at this. So John Ortberg says this. He says, the tithe is a terrible ceiling, but an excellent floor. The tithe is an excellent ceiling, uh, sorry, a terrible ceiling, but an excellent floor. We see in the New Testament they were overwhelmed by God's generosity to them. And so their generosity to other people was just a mirror of what they have understood God to do for them. That's new covenant giving. That's how we think of, the, or we are learning to think of the tithe in the New Testament. Is it, yeah, is the first ten percent? Oh well, yeah, that's a given. How much beyond that are we going to go? Now, don't hear me saying that this is easy to do. I tell my community group this almost every single week. I'm not saying that it's easy, but I am saying that it's simple. Those are very different. And if you have, if if money is this like really weird thing for you, if you, you hate it, it stresses you out, like you just wish Jesus would come back right this second so you wouldn't have to deal with it anymore, and it's... Uh, maybe you've, you've had bad experiences, maybe you've backed yourself into a corner, maybe, you know, whatever. Um, or you're on the other, other side of the corner, whatever it is, it doesn't really matter. That God doesn't want this to be an idol for you. He wants to teach you to think correctly about it. And so the discipline that he has installed into the life of his people is to give. And you give and you give and you give. And we're generous with our lives, we're generous with our stuff, we're generous with our time. We're making space in our lives for other people. And sometimes, you know what that requires? It requires money. It requires an accurate view of your possessions and your stuff. So, as New Covenant Christians, how do we, how do we get there? Because I can end it right now and be like, well that's the thing, When you to be tithing 10% and up. See y'all later, you know. Uh, that doesn't really do any good to a lot of us, you know. Um, so I have some thoughts. Spoiler alert. Um, let me give you a couple of things that I think maybe could be helpful to all of us going forward in this. Now, you may have a 100% Christ-like view of money, finances, tithing, everything. This sermon may have not introduced any anything new to you. Uh, and if so, then, like, Praise be to God for what He has done in your life, but where we live, especially in America, with uh, and, and by that I mean like in the West where we live, especially in America, especially Baton Rouge, that kind of stuff. Um, the The danger of this idol is it's always lurking. It's always lurking. And so, how do we keep that from happening? I have a couple of thoughts. Um, Here's a couple of next steps. One, I would say, uh, remind yourself of God's holistic generosity toward us in Christ. And before you make tonight about money, make it about Jesus. Make it about Him, His generosity to you. Like, make it personal. Sometimes, you know, sometimes we make the gospel too too personal, you know, and you forget other people. And then sometimes we make it too general and we don't apply it to our, ourselves. Uh, For this one, let's let's don't worry about other people. Let's just make it really specific. God's generosity toward you. That He shared His life with you. He made room in His life for you. In His kingdom, at His table, in His family for you. And He has showered you with grace. And you might look at your life and say, well, because of these circumstances, I don't think that's true. I would, I would really just challenge you to take that to the Lord and just to tell him that. Just, to straight, just straight up just tell him that. Say, because of these things, I don't really think that you give a rip about me. So what do you have to say about that? And just let him respond to you. So this is primarily not about money. It's primarily about Jesus. So that's one thing. Second thing would be to pray about your financial stewardship and involve Jesus in this aspect of your life. A lot of people don't, and and I'm I'm one of them that that, that has seasonally been uh, been really like, been good at that, and then like other times not so good at it. But making it a, a matter of prayer, a matter of of uh, like when you're organizing your life, really asking the Lord, what do you want me to what are you going to do here? Because as I said, the calculator is no longer what determines stuff for us. Now it's the Spirit. And so ask Him. Begin to pray about your finances if you don't already. The third thing, ask Him to help you see the needs around you. I know that sounds silly, but it's so easy to kind of go through life with our head down, you know. There's a lot of need around us. I mean a lot. And how has God decided to like meet the needs that exist on the earth? One of the most dynamic ways he's designed to do that is through his church, you know. And so tithing, contributing financially to the like to the ongoing efforts of the church, like that's a part of meeting needs. And so sometimes it's just a matter of kind of looking around and being like, man, there's a lot of stuff going on around us that people need some help. Maybe it's in the city. Maybe it's it's seeing needs at work. Maybe it's uh, in your neighborhood. Maybe it's just in your own community group. You know, just pay attention to some things. But um, So maybe that's uh, uh, something that would be beneficial to you. Uh, the fourth thing... Um, I know I'm going quick, but uh, I need to. Um, the, the fourth thing... Is, is to test the Lord. And here's, here's one of those things, you know, like, I'm, man, I hate the prosperity gospel so much. It just makes me want to vomit. It really does. You probably, you probably saw the story about this, this uh, prosperity guy wanting to buy a $65 million jet. This, you know, he's a preacher or whatever. I, that stuff, man. Okay. So, so when I say this, I don't want don't hear, I'm not one of those people. Okay. But in Malachi 3, verse 10, this is what it says. Is bring the full tithe into the storehouse. All right, the full tithe, you know, the full 10%, not, you know, 3%, you know, whatever, the full 10% into the storehouse, uh, that there may be food in my house, and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open the window of heaven, windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. This is the only time in the Bible where God says, test me. Everywhere else, he says, "Don't, don't test me. Don't test me, like, oh, except for this." I wonder why. I wonder why he he did that. I think because he knows that money and finances and possessions, and all that kind of this is something, an area of life that is such a such a problem for us. And he's like, "I know how I can get your attention. I can work out some financial miracles, and that will make you pay attention in a very unique way." So he says, you need to test me in this. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse. Now, where that becomes a problem is, uh, you know, some some people are more organized with their money than others. And some of you, the reason why you struggle with giving um, and with that 10% as a floor and all that kind of idea is because you're like, if I do this, I will not be able to make it. I will not be able to pay the rent, pay the light bill, eat, whatever it is. You know, you're like, I'm living like I'm... Like, check to check, literally down to the dime, you know. And then here's this annoying verse, so God's like, test me. Test me and see if I don't provide. Test me and see if I'm not faithful to you, to bless you until there's no more need. Now, granted, there are some who, it's not about need, it's about want, you know. That's a whole other sermon. That's not next week, by the way, so come back. (laughs) Needs and wants, that's a whole other thing, but... God's saying, look, I'm going to take care of you, and I I dare you to test me in this. It's the only time in the Bible it's there. So maybe, the fourth thing, maybe you just need to test him. Maybe you need to say, okay, God, let's see how faithful you're going to be. And not in an arrogant, cocky kind of way, but in like a very faithful, like, this is what you said, so I'm going to trust that you meant it kind of way. The last thing, figure out where you want to be and start working toward it. Don't hear me putting pressure on you. Don't hear me as, the, as the, the pastor and think that I have access to the books and who gives what because I don't. Don't hear me saying that it's just that simple. It's just that, you know, whatever. I mean, it's simple, but it's, it's just that easy. Those kinds of things. Start forming a plan. Figure out what kind of person do I want to be with my money and my stuff and start working toward that. And you know, what? it might take you a little while. We're under, the, we're under grace. We're not under the law. So if, you, if, if you're sitting there, you're looking at your giving, and you're like, okay, now I'm giving 0%. It may take me a while to get to 10. So how can I organize my life in that direction? Don't be lazy in that pursuit. But don't feel guilt and shame about your giving either. Figure out where you want to be Start making a way there. If you don't know how to do a budget, somebody around you does. If you don't know how to create more margin, get somebody objective to look at your budget and figure it out and say, I need to create some space. Where can I see it? And someone says, is this a need or a want? And then you punch them and then you kind of go back and pray about it and whatever. Um, Figure out where you want to be. Start making a plan. All of us as Christians, our ideal that we're working toward is 10% as a floor and margin in our lives that meets needs as they come up. That's that's what we're going toward. It's okay if you're not there right now. Make it something that you pray about. Let me tell you something one last thing it's not related to anything else. You just need to know that I'm here speaking that my pastoral concern is about our spiritual formation and not our budget. And not anything we want to do. And I know that it could probably seem like very self-serving that I'm saying this, but you just need to believe me that it's not. That God doesn't want this idol to exist in our lives. He's given us a new covenant under grace, tithe, and beyond to be able to work toward, to form in us as a reflection of his generosity to us. That's my concern. It has nothing to do with anything else. So I don't know where it fits with you. But uh, that's between you and the Lord. So uh, thanks for thanks for listening to a sermon on money. And uh, but we're gonna sing a little bit because as I said earlier, this isn't about Jesus. This is not about money. So let's let's stand together. God, we know that um, we know that money is just kind of a hassle sometimes, and but it doesn't have to be. So no matter no matter our perspective, whether it's right in line with you or it 's really out in left field, um, this is something that you want to teach us to think correctly about to sanctify us and to mature us and to grow us and um, for for our own edification, our own holiness, our own formation, but also for the furthering of the gospel on this earth that until you come back, you have handed. Us, this incredible, um, incredible message of hope and reconciliation. And that's supposed to show up in all of our lives, like in every area of our lives. And so our desire is to just consistently reflect the gospel to those around us and to keep preaching it to ourselves and to each other. And so really, tithing is its an act of worship, as I said, because we're just celebrating your generosity to us in Christ. The fact that we were, we were lost and alienated from you. We were separate because of our sin. And yet, through the blood of Christ, those who were once far off have been brought near. And you've showered us with grace and love and compassion. And you care for us uh, in the deepest of ways. And so we're able to just mirror that. And so we know the starting point is, is a deep embracing of the gospel. And so as we sing these songs, I pray that you would help us to not make this about money, but just to make this about you.